0: Hi, Discover Community Church, I just wanted to share um, a little about my first rescue bag that I gave out today. Um, You know, I've had three of them in my car for three weeks or so, and um, I've just been trying to stay open to, you know, God's nudging. And, you know, I've passed by a couple people that looked like they could have used them, and it just wasn't the right opportunity. You know, my car was going too fast or I had to turn or whatever, but, um, I just happened to notice a, um, an older woman who looked like she had some mobility issues and she was sitting right outside of, um, Chick-fil-A. And I know that gets so busy during the day. And, you know, I stopped my car. It was just kind of an automatic response. And I thought, you know, I think she might be able to use this um, as I got out of the car, I felt really silly. She was kind of looking at me like, Oh, what's she going to do? And, um, i kind of felt awkward, but you know, I just felt the Lord kind of nudging me. And I, as I walked up to her, I just said, Hey, I've got a, a bag full of little goodies. Is this something you could use? And, um, she said, Oh, that's always, that's always something I can use. And, um, just her response. overwhelmed me because to me it was, you know, I have so much, I have so much um, little junk that I don't even use laying around my house and it just spoke to my heart so it might have really blessed her and I really think it did as I drove away. Um, I just saw her kind of looking through it looked like a precious gift to her and i just prayed for her but um i think it impacted me more profoundly than than it probably even impacted her um it just made me realize how many things i take for granted and i'm sorry for the ugly crying but um we are so blessed i am so blessed and um just taught me a lesson to just just open up my home to share you know um and yeah i just love the little things that we're doing at discover community church i love the community i love the unity and the diversity that he's brought together there and i pray for an expansion of of god and his kingdom um in and through us and in our community because i see that even the littlest things um can make a big difference in our hearts and if he changes enough of our hearts then we truly can change the world um and we can bring more people to him so i just want to share that with you and hope it blesses you because it It blessed my socks off today, so thank you for allowing me to participate in this ministry. It's it's so, so cool. (laughs) Thank you.
1: Isn't that awesome? Gosh, that that is so cool. You know, that's right into the vision and mission when God gave us the vision and mission of this church. It's built right into it is to encourage one another by testimony, you know, in the In the Bible, in the book of Revelations, it talks about how we're going to win the ultimate battle, right? The ultimate battle over sin and evil in the world is won by the blood of the Lamb and the power of our testimony. So don't ever underestimate how powerful testimony is. And the reason that we take time to do that, um, passing the mic around or showing things like this, is because the enemy is constantly at work in the world. Right, And he's, when he does something, man, it splashes all over the news. And you see it 24-7 on, on cable news networks. You hear about it. It's in our neighborhoods. When he does something, he makes a big splash. And it's easy to just get caught up, and that's all that's happening, and, and that's all that we see around us. But by sharing testimony of the way that God is good and the way that God just uses us, she wasn't paid or coerced or any way to do that she was blessed, and she said, I want to share this with my, with my family, with my church family, and hopefully that encourages you and, and uplifts you and gives you that. Next time you hear that little nudge like, oh, you should talk to somebody, or you should do this, or you should do that, hopefully, maybe you'll have a little flashback to that moment and go, she resisted for a while, but when she finally gave in, she was so blessed, and so was the woman, but I mean, she was obviously equally as blessed. So, just let that be a, a, an encouragement to you to just keep on being a doer of the word. Keep doing what the word says. Don't just study and learn and read about. I mean, and I'm going to teach a message, and we're going to learn about the word, and that's so cool. But if we don't go out into the world and live it, okay, then then we're not accomplishing much. Our personal salvation is wonderful, but we are here and now for a reason. And that's to do things just like that. So anyway, so thank her for her, for her testimony. Thank you guys for listening. Um, and as we go into the message today, the first thing I want to do is thank you, Pastor Jonathan. Did Pastor Jonathan do an awesome job last week? Man. I tell you what, when we started this church, one thing I said is, okay, I don't want to, uh, I don't want to be the only teacher. It, it cannot be about me. Okay? It's got to be about the body, and it's got to be about all of us using our gifts. And and so, opening up the teaching to other people to give them an opportunity to teach, it it might have been a little bit of a risk because I'd never heard Pastor Jonathan teach. I don't know if he's ever heard Pastor Jonathan teach. But man, did he do a good job, and, and I know I was blessed by getting to, to hear just a wonderful message, and, and I think many of you were, based on the feedback that I got, many of you were also. So anyway, so first and foremost, thank you, Pastor Jonathan. So let's get into the message. I want to open up in prayer. Sometimes sometimes even, okay, I'm, I'm the lead pastor here, and sometimes I forget. To, to pray over things, and my wife's got to remind me, or when I'm all finished, I go like, oh man, I should have prayed. I want to open up in prayer, so would you just join me in this? Heavenly Father, we just lift this, this message up to you. We lift this evening and our time together here as a family, Lord, we just ask that you would bless this time together, that you would speak to us all individually and give each one of us a fresh of word, Lord, speak to our hearts, we'll hear the word but, Lord, we want to hear your word. We want you to speak to us. Give us that unique perspective, that unique word straight from your heart to ours that only you can give. Lord, you know what we need to hear and when we need to hear it. So, Father, I just pray that you would speak through me. Give me the words to speak that will, that will stand against strongholds, that will break down barriers, that will bring the reality of your word and your son Jesus To life. So, Father, we just thank you for this time and the freedom to gather together and lift up your son, Jesus, and worship him. Lord, we thank you. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, guys. So, we are down to now three weeks until Easter. It's going to be here fast. Three weeks until Easter. And so, there's some cool things that happen as we get a little bit closer. We'll start talking more about things like Good Friday. Our Good Friday service, by the way, and we're going to start talking about it more next week, I think. But we've actually got, there's three churches that are going to come together. There's us, there's Trailhead, and there's one more that we're all going to come together and actually have like a joint interactive kind of a service in here on Good Friday. It's it's not going to be teaching, worship, your typical service. So it's not a substitute for Easter, Um, but it's going to be really cool, something that we haven't done here in a long time. And again, we're all on the same team. So inviting these other life-giving churches in here together for us to all just worship together, I think, is a powerful thing in the kingdom. So mark that down. Good Friday. It's the Friday right before Easter. We're going to have something really cool here. So uh, we talk about traditions. Again, a lot of them that we haven't talked about before, but a lot of them we're going to start talking about. One of which, if you haven't been here in a while, is Stations of the Cross. And I do see some faces that haven't been here for a while, so let me just recap really quick. Stations of the Cross Typically, you would would think of it as being a Catholic tradition, right? The Catholics uh, do a very good job of commemorating the the stations. They have actually set up in Jerusalem, in Israel, they have set up actual physical stations, points along the way, And, and it's something that they have kept alive. It's a tradition that they've done a very good job at, and many of us have probably heard of Stations of the Cross, but do you really understand what they are? So what the stations are, they are places along the pathway, literally the road and the section of alleyways in Jerusalem, in Israel, that Jesus walked. From the time when he was judged by Pilate until he walked all the way to Golgotha and he was crucified. There's a pathway that weaves through the city and that pathway is called the Via Dolorosa, which means the, the way of sorrows, literally is what it means. But along the way are places where significant things happened in his walk. Okay, the whole thing was significant, yes, but especially significant things happened along the way. And so what we're doing, the stations are commemorating the places approximately where that particular thing happened. In Jerusalem, you can go there, you can physically see these places. This is where this happened, that's where that happened, and you can see it. Now, in a lot of traditions, there are different numbers. There's anywhere from 12 to 14. Uh, some traditions hold that there are eight different stations. Okay? So depending on the tradition that you grew up in and what you've seen, you, you've seen any different number of them. What we're doing is we're focusing on the eight that are specifically listed in Scripture. Okay? Some of them are inferred by the things that happened. Some of them are historical evidence that happened, and that's where that station comes from. We're just going to talk about the eight that are listed specifically in scripture. So that's where we find ourselves. So to, to give you a quick recap, station one, excuse me, station one uh, is out of Mark 15, 15. That's where Pilate actually condemns Jesus. Jesus is judged. Caiaphas takes Jesus before Pilate. Pilate judges him uh, to, to die. Station number two is out of John 19:17, where Jesus actually accepts the cross. He takes the cross on to himself. Station number three is out of Mark 15, 21, where Jesus actually collapses under the weight of the cross, and they enlist Simon, a passerby, to actually help Jesus to carry the cross. Okay, that's number three. Number four is out of Luke 23, uh, 27, where Jesus actually takes time in the middle of all this to stop and speak to the women that are standing nearby. Okay, daughters of Jerusalem specifically. He's talking to them. Um, And then last week. Where Pastor Jonathan taught, out of Matthew, Jesus is actually stripped of his garments. And in the middle of all this, they take his clothes, he is stripped naked in front of everybody, further humiliation, further taking away his identity, uh, uh, thinking they are taking away his identity. Uh, But what a great message that was. So that was station five. This week, we move on now to station number six. Okay, station number six, and there is a little, Pastor Jonathan mentioned it last week, there's a little bit of overlap, okay, because now we're at the point where all of these things, the rest of these stations, actually happen at the cross, at the place where Jesus was crucified. So there's no more moving around, and so some of the narratives kind of intertwine, and they sort of overlap, okay, but we are going to focus on different aspects of what was going on. So this week, uh, our scripture for this week, station number six, is Mark 15, And we're going to go 22 through 26, okay? If you want a good narrative of what happened uh, in that last time of Jesus, read through Mark 15. It's it's a great uh, chapter. So recommend that you do that. But here we are, Mark 15, 22 to 26. Then they brought him to the place Golgotha, which is translated place of a skull. They tried to give him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him... And divided up his garments among themselves, casting lots for them to decide what each man should take. That's what Jonathan taught on last week. It was the third hour when they crucified him. The inscription of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. Okay, so that's our scripture. Now that's a lot to kind of take in. A lot of different things happen in there. And so what I want to do is I want to take some time. I want to break it down. We're going to go line by line. And talk about what's going on here. Now, I'm going to talk about kind of the uh, the facts, sort of, about what's going on. But then when we get down towards the end, I want to talk about what God has shared me, with me specifically. That rhema word that he gave me about what he wants me to share specifically with you. Now, many of us have heard different teachings on this, and so there's there's... Obviously, nothing new. The goal of, of an expository preacher, which is, which is what I try to be, is not to make Scripture say something it didn't say. Okay? It's not to like, come up with something new, a new angle that nobody has ever thought of before. The goal is to simply study the Scripture and, and explain what it says. Okay? And then it's the job of the Holy Spirit to give us that rhema word on what we are to take away. Basically, how we are to personally interpret that. But I think he showed me something really interesting that I want to share with you as we get down. So let's go ahead and and uh, go down through the first through the first verse. So Mark fifteen twenty two. Then they brought him to the place Golgotha, which is translated place of a skull. Okay. So uh, Mark actually goes through and uh, and says gives us the translation of the word Golgotha, which is cool. We've got some images of it, and I want to show you. This is what it looks like today. Okay. It's It's a bus station. Okay. Now, on the left, if you can see it, and I'll show you a better picture here in a second. But on the left, you can see, kind of vaguely, make out the outline of what looks like kind of a skull face. Right. You can kind of see that. The reason I wanted to show you this picture is is twofold. Number one is its proximity. Now, actually, from this vantage point, you're you're standing in the in, in the place where the Garden Tomb is, so it's not very far away. But only about a hundred yards or so to the right is actually the walls of the city of Jerusalem. Okay, so this is very, very close. You can stand on the walls and you can actually look out. And on the right-hand side, you can see those towers. Those towers are minarets. Okay, and those minarets are actually Muslim. they're, they're mosques that are right there. And this bus station, this property that this bus station, the bus terminal is on, is owned by the the Muslims who own those mosques, okay? And it's just another example of how the Muslims are kind of a little antagonistic against the Christians and against the Jews in Israel. So they've taken this place that butts right up against Golgotha, and they have actually turned it into a bus depot. Okay, Here here in the States, any sort of historically significant place like that would have fences around it and parks and all kinds of things. Here, it's a bus station. Okay, We have a little better picture of a little close-up. Maybe you can see it right there just a little bit better. Now, obviously, it's weathered away over the years. Um, But this is kind of where the place of the skull... Some people will tell you that since there were a lot of crucifixions that happened on that hill, there were a lot of bones and there were a lot of things laying around, and that's where it got the name of the skull. It's not terribly historically accurate because they would take the bodies away and bury them. They didn't just pile up bones there. But we believe, I believe, that this is why it got the name Golgotha, place of a skull. Now, let's show you one more picture. Now, this is a a kind of a painting, rendering of it, but you can see on the right is the skull image on that rock, and then the pathway as Jesus is carrying the cross up to the top. Okay, so that's, that's where we are. That's where this takes place. So a lot of you may have heard um, it called Calvary, right? A lot, of, a lot of times we've heard it called Calvary. In fact, a lot of people have heard it called Calvary. Not many have heard of it its actual name of Golgotha, which means place of the skull. But... They are one and the same place, Calvary, Golgotha. And what it is, is Calvary is actually the Latin translation of the word Golgotha. That's all it is. It's just, it's, it's, it doesn't translate word for word. It actually in Latin is uh, Calvary locus. Cal, I'm sure I'm not pronouncing it correctly, but, but that's what it is. And they take that and they shorten it to Calvary. And so when we talk about Calvary, it's the same place. Okay, It's, it's, it's one and the same place. So uh, let's move on to the next scripture, Mark 15, 23. They tried to give him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. I've read that a whole bunch of times, and it didn't really have any significance to me until I was praying over this message. And I'll talk more about that a little bit later. But in in this verse right here, the they, okay, they tried to give him wine mixed with myrrh. It's actually a Jewish tradition to those people who were condemned to death, specifically by crucifixion, they would offer them wine mixed with myrrh. Now, wine mixed with myrrh is actually unique. Now, myrrh in itself can be incense. It can be medicinal. It, it can be used for a number of things. It's actually a sap that comes out of a tree, and then they, they take that. But if you mix that with wine, it becomes kind of a powerful narcotic. And so that's what they are offering to Jesus, and, it, and the they... In this verse, is actually when I remember when I taught uh, two weeks ago about the daughters of Jerusalem, okay, these women who were professional mourners, they would follow around these processions, mourning and wailing and things. Another one of their jobs was to offer the condemned myrrh, okay. And, And in some scriptures, it calls it gall. You may have heard it gall, or it'll say gall mixed with vinegar, or different ways that they phrase it. It's the same thing, okay, but in this scripture, it talks about it as being specifically about it being myrrh. Another use for it was actually as embalming fluid. They would use it as embalming fluid. But in this case, that's what it is. Now, the Roman soldiers allowed this to happen, and they weren't doing it out of any goodness of their heart, like, oh, let's give him, let's give him some painkiller. They were doing it for very pragmatic reasons. They would offer them this narcotic to drug them to calm them down so they would fight less as they're being strapped to the cross and they're being nailed, Okay, this is what typically would happen. They would, they would give them this. They would drug them. They would, they would calm them down. They would lay them down. They would, they would either tie their wrists and feet or they would drive nails through them. But then when they put them up on the cross, the myrrh would start to wear off. The concoction would start to wear off, and then obviously then the pain would come in. But it was just pragmatic for the for the Roman soldiers. It made their life easier. And, and it made the, made the Jewish ladies feel good to be able to do something that would help. So that's what they did. So that's what it says here. They tried to give him wine mixed with myrrh, but he refused it. A side note here, just interestingly, you may have heard of myrrh in the context of when the three wise men are coming to visit Jesus, right? They gave him, What did they give him? Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. We've heard that tons of times. What is that? Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And just, again, just a little side note Those three gifts weren't random. Those three gifts are very symbolic of who Jesus was. And they knew who Jesus was because the Spirit had told them who Jesus was. The gold symbolizes Jesus as king. This is kingship, okay? Kings get gold. Frankincense was just purely a a perfume, okay? Symbolizing his role as our high priest, okay? And then myrrh, in this context, used Specifically as embalming fluid, symbolizing, not embalming fluid, but an embalming poultice kind of thing, um, symbolizing his death. So those three gifts at his birth, given gold, frankincense, myrrh, symbolize his kingship, his priesthood, and then ultimately his death. So the Bible's always foreshadowing and going back and forth and giving us clues as far as what, what is going to happen. So, our next, moving on, Mark 15, 24. And they crucified him and divided up his garments among themselves, casting lots for them to decide what each man should take. Pastor Jonathan did a great job teaching about the crucifixion part, uh, uh, I'm sorry, about the cloth part of it. And so I won't go into that too much. um, But the crucifixion was a spectacle. It was, you saw in that painting, people would just come up to just watch. Now when they would nail the person up, the vertical post would always be there. Okay, They would set that in the ground long before. And then it was simply the cross piece that they would hoist him up there and they would nail him up there and bind that cross piece. This is uh, an image of very much what it would have looked like. Just take that in for a moment and think that you're sitting here and you're watching these people. Now they would slowly suffocate is how typically how you would die. Now, you would die of blood loss or a number of different reasons, but if you didn't die from that, you would die from the fact that you couldn't breathe after a while. You couldn't. Your muscles couldn't hold your body up enough to be able to breathe, and you would eventually become tired. You wouldn't have the strength anymore, and you would literally suffocate because you couldn't breathe. That process would take a long time. Some people it would take hours, some people it could take a couple days. And if you got tired of waiting, sometimes they would just go up and they would just shove a spear into you and and call it quits. Or what they would do is that they would take a club and they would come break your legs. okay? Because with your legs nailed like that, you could relieve a little bit of the pressure on your ribs so that you could breathe a little bit. But even then, you get tired. So they would break your legs so that you could no longer hold yourself up. That would hasten the process. But it was a spectacle. People would come. Not only could you see from the walls of Jerusalem, so I imagine people would just stand up there and they're just watching what's happening up on the hill, but people would come out and they would just sit and watch. That's what the spectacle looked like. Everyone had a sign over them. The sign over them, now the two on the sides. Um, in this image, they don't have it there, but tradition was they would put a sign up over your head that would explain what your crimes were. And I'll get into that more. <clears throat> get into that more just a little bit later. But that's that's what they would do. That's what a crucifixion looks like. Next scripture, Mark 15, 25. Very simply, there's not much here. There was a third hour when they crucified him. Some versions, you'll see that it says it was the sixth hour. And, And I've heard people say, oh, the Bible contradicts itself. Because in this gospel, it says sixth hour. In this gospel, it says third hour. What's the difference? The difference is the tradition. In the book of John, it says the sixth hour. Well, that is going by the Roman timekeeping method. Okay, if you're, keeping me- if you're keeping time by the Roman method, you would say it was the sixth hour. That's what time it was. But by the Jewish standard, which is to take night and day and you divide them into four equal parts. That's the Jewish time standard. At least it was at that time. Then it becomes the third hour, which really becomes our what we would call 9 a.m., it's about 9 a.m. in the morning. It was typically about 6 a.m. when they would judge them and start that procession up to, the, up to uh, Golgotha. So it's not a contradiction. In fact, it's just a, a difference in the timekeeping method that they were using. So that's it for that one. So Mark 15, 26, moving on. It says, the inscription of the charge against him read, King of the Jews. And as I said, that's kind of tradition. That's what they would do. They would put up, whatever your crime was, They would put up there. The interesting thing about this, and some of you may have read this, different Gospels talk about it differently, but the high priest of the Sanhedrin, Caiaphas, he went nuts when he saw that. Okay, he didn't like it saying the king of the Jews. That was actually Pilate's idea to write king of the Jews. Okay, so that was his crime as being king of the Jews. It's another instance, and we've talked about it as we've gone along where Pilate is poking at the Sanhedrin. He's poking at the Jews and all their, their piousness, saying, you're, this guy's not guilty. He hasn't done anything, and yet you're insisting that he be crucified. So every step along the way, Pilate doesn't miss an opportunity to poke at them and to irritate them. And so he puts king of the Jews up there. Caiaphas says, hey, can you, can you change that? Can you put his crime was he said he was king of the Jews. Okay, that would make him feel better. He's not king of the Jews. He, he said he was, thereby making him a liar. And the response, simply from, from Pilate, it's in John 19. He says, what I've written, I've written. In other words, I'm, I'm not changing it. Okay. You can just imagine the Sanhedrin who are around, and they're thinking, okay, this guy, he's a blasphemer. He's, he's trouble for us, and we finally got him, and he's being crucified, and as he's being crucified, there's one more poke at them that just says king of the Jews. So that's it for all the individual scriptures. Now, what I want to go back to is the part that I feel like God really impressed this on me. And this is uh, Mark 15, 23. It says, they tried to give him wine mixed with myrrh, but he didn't take it. Why in that instance do you think Jesus wouldn't take it? I've read that a lot of times, and I thought, okay, Jesus is just refusing help. He's just saying, no, no, get away, I've got this. But why do you think really that Jesus would have refused the wine and the myrrh at that time? Well, I think it's twofold. One is, is it's, it's actually Scripture, what we would call Scripture. He didn't take it because he said he wasn't going to. If you go back into Matthew, it's Matthew twenty six twenty nine, where Jesus is actually telling the disciples during the Last Supper, he says, but I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. So he had told them at that point, I'm not gonna drink any more wine until I drink it with you there. So Jesus is foreshadowing that and saying, hey, the day's gonna come when I'm there with you and we'll have wine together. But so when he's offered the opportunity right here to, to numb his senses, to dampen the pain, he says no. And he knew what was coming when he said it. But he refused. He refused because he said he was going to. But here's the other thing. I believe he wanted to be clear-headed and deliberate about what he was going through. He didn't want to be clouded. See, Jesus Jesus is our shepherd, and we are his sheep. And a good shepherd is clear-headed and alert. The Bible, in many places, there are dozens of scriptures that talk about being sober, some of them in the context of drinking too much wine, but most of them in the context of being focused and being vigilant and I think that's what Jesus was doing. He wanted to be there. And in fact, um, several of them, but one that I really like, Second Timothy 4, 5. This is Paul actually writing to Timothy. Now, Paul's in prison at this point. He's in the final prison, not the, not the luxury house arrest prison that he was in earlier. He's in the dungeon in chains right now, and, he, and he's writing. He writes to Timothy, and he says, But you be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, and fulfill your ministry. That's 2 Timothy 2, 5, uh, 4, 5. So he's telling Timothy, be sober, be alert, and fulfill your calling. That thing that God has called you to do, don't be sidetracked. Don't be sidetracked by the things that the world is going to throw at you. Okay? Now, that word, in, uh, uh, that word be sober, it actually, and I'm not going to pull. you know, I, I went into Strong's and all this, I'm not going to share all the references with you, But it basically means not to be intoxicated, one, in terms of literally, but figuratively, free from the intoxicating influences of sin. Free from the intoxicating influences of sin, which are greed, um, lust, anything that can distract us from what God's calling us to do. Anything that distracts us from our purpose. And Jesus is seeing this and he's saying, I don't want anything that could dull my senses to being on guard. See, right up until the very last moment, our shepherd was on watch. Until the very last moment, our shepherd was on watch for us, being vigilant for us. And so he refused to dull those senses. We sometimes do things to numb our senses from the things that can come at us in the world, right? It's an escape from reality. We hear that all the time, right? It's my little escape from reality. And there's nothing wrong with doing something just simply for the comfort of it or because it relaxes us or it refreshes us. But when it rises to the point to where we say these words, it's my escape from reality, what we're doing is we're dulling our senses. One way or another, it doesn't have to be chemically dulled, but we're distracting ourselves from being on guard. And when a shepherd is distracted from being on guard, the wolves get into the sheep. And so, our job is to be vigilant and our job is to be on guard and to stand against the things that would distract us to the things the enemy is trying to do in our lives. Because scripture says the enemy prowls around 24 7. It doesn't say 24 7. The enemy prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. And that someone is you, that someone is your loved ones, is your children. Everybody that you know is on the enemy's radar. And if we're not vigilant and on point, then we leave an opening. We leave a door open. We leave some aspect of our life unguarded. And so when we fill our time up with things like, your escape from reality could be food. You eat too much. It could be exercise. Okay? I've seen people who work out and run and do things constantly to an extreme point and they do it because they don't want to deal with reality or what's going on at home or what's going on in their spirit. TV, movies, work. You heard the term workaholic? That's all that means is that you've taken work and you've elevated it to a point to where now it's an addiction. Now it's something that's numbing your senses. Substances, obviously, caffeine, just busyness. Notice how I glossed over caffeine. (laughs) In excess. I'm sorry, I'm guilty of that one too when I'm on my fourth cup of coffee for the day. None of these things are bad in themselves. They're not inherently bad. When it rises to the point, though, to where you find yourself saying, this is my escape from reality. I want you to think how vigilant are you being about the spiritual things that are coming at you and, uh, and at your family if you're numbing your senses. The worship team can go ahead and start heading up right now. If you guys could move up here. How many of us, me included, how many of us have gone through the day and we, we're just on like on autopilot? right? At the end of the day, you go, I had a day, and somehow I got from work to home, but I don't even remember the drive, right? I know I'm not the only one, but I am certainly one. It happens to me all the time. I've gone through huge sections of times. I've gone through entire days on autopilot, just mechanically doing the things that I'm supposed to do. I think that's not the way Jesus wants us to live our life. We are supposed to be present And engaged in everything that comes our way. If we're not present and engaged in what's happening, we walk right past and we overlook ministry opportunities. Think about the testimony that we saw. If she was just on autopilot going through the drive through at Chick fil A, getting lunch and going on, not paying attention to anything, she would have missed an opportunity that God had for her. That was a divine appointment, and she saw it because she was engaged and she was ready and she was looking for it. See, a lot of times the things that come our way are painful. Crucifixion, I think we all could have given Jesus a pass on go ahead and take the pain medication, go ahead and dull that pain. We would have given him a pass on that, but he chose not to because he said, I need to be present. And I need to be on guard. And so sometimes, sometimes life is not fun. There are times when the things that we find ourselves in are not pleasant, but it's life. And we are supposed to experience life. The joy, the pain, the good and the bad. It's all part of the experience of life that Jesus walks us through. But the thing is, you're not in it alone. You're not in it just to figure it out, and especially in those times where there's pain. Jesus is standing right next to you saying, I will walk through this with you. You're not alone. But we can't be numb to it. We can't look away and busy ourselves with something else and pretend that it's not happening. It's only through the experience of pain that we can even fully appreciate the joy in our lives. And so I think we are to look at Jesus. When we come against evil in the world, when we come against the things that come our way, look at Jesus' example. Every opportunity, every reason to not engage with that pain. And he did. And he did it for us. And he did it with full Understanding and a clear head of what he was getting into. And so that's always our example. The reality is you're here on earth for a reason. The days always won't be fun. Sometimes they'll be, be the opposite of fun. But if you listen for the voice of God and you follow his steps and you follow his direction, and you're bold sometimes to step out in something that seems like it might be a little painful, definitely uncomfortable, watch what he can do. Watch what he can do when we are engaged and present and we say, here we are, Lord, use us. Use us. So as we go into response, we're gonna do communion right now. We have prayer warriors in the back who are more than happy to pray with you. Maybe through this message, God is pinpointing some word in your heart, that rhema word that I prayed for at the very beginning. Maybe he's pinpointing something in your heart that is something you should shed, something maybe that you're dulling your senses with. And maybe you need one of our prayer warriors to come alongside you and help you. Pray through that. Show you what that thing is and just help you Help you pray. And it's just as simple as just repenting of it, saying, God, I don't want that. I want more of you. They can help you with that. We'll do communion. We have at the crosses, we have juice and bread and crackers, and you just dip the bread or the crackers in the juice there. You can serve yourself there. We'll be up front here. We've got wine and bread and crackers, and we would love to serve you. But as I say every week, the danger in doing communion every week is that after a while it becomes like, okay, this is just time to do communion and then we're one song and then we're done and then we can go. I don't want you to think that way. I want you to be engaged and present in the moment. What is God speaking to you? And how would he have you respond to a message like this? So let's take that time. If you wanna stand and worship right away, you can do that. If you wanna stay in your seats, you can do that. If you are ready to begin moving around and taking communion, Let's do that. Let's be intentional about our response, though. Again, whether it's prayer, whether it's walking out the door, whatever it is, let's be intentional because Jesus was. Amen? Thank you, guys.
2: It's extra